I understand his argument, but it's not science that can answer that, like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's an infinity stone that Doctor Strange gets, and he sits in like a lotus position, and he goes through like this like mumbo jumbo thing, and he auto plays through 14,605,000 possible scenarios to figure out in which one they will beat Thanos. And he decides that the in the only scenario in which they beat Thanos, he has to surrender the time stone. Folks, may, but again, may I appeal to our audience? May I appeal to our audience for a moment? Do you see do. what Matt does to me? Do you see what Matt does to me? Here I'm talking about Sam Harris, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm being thrown infinity stones? Hello and welcome to another illustrative episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, a production of the Coming Home Network. Check us out at chnetwork.org, especially community.chnetwork.org. We would love to see you on there. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley. Um, I was never anything but a Christian. Ken was a (laughs) wild pagan and then he became a Baptist pastor. So he's a little bit more equipped than I am to speak to this question of um, a world where uh, some people say there is no God, and uh, what does that mean? So uh, me, on the other hand, I have a lot of friends who used to believe what I believe and now don't believe in anything, so i got to figure out a way to talk to them. <laughs> so that's where we are. Ken, how are you? I am doing doing fine. I'm great. I'm kind of raring to go. Good, good. And uh, remind us, if you would, Ken, of kind of the unique approach that we're taking here. Not so much a proof that God exists or a walkthrough of the proof that God exists, but rather a way to mm-hmm. reframe this argument when we're in discussions like these, right? Yes. Uh, the way I describe it, uh, what I'm doing, by the way, in this series, typically you and I are, 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 are relating aspects of our journey into the Catholic faith. What we're doing in this series is taking a break from that, and I'm describing and working with you on it. I'm describing the approach that I often take when doing apologetics, that is when presenting arguments, let's say, with those who identify as atheist. And I refer to my approach as the Wizard of Oz approach. Um, Another way I refer to it as being the fine art of placing a finger on the tension that exists between who the atheist really is as God's image and likeness and what he or she says about the universe in which we we live. Now, to, to get back to the point that you were making, yes, it's an indirect approach. Rather than presenting positive direct arguments, you know, for here's a proof for God's existence, what I'm doing is taking an indirect approach here, and I'm asking or I'm challenging uh, those who say there is no God and that nature is all there is, I'm challenging them to make sense of their experience as human beings in terms of what they say is true, that is in terms of atheism. So in a sense, challenging them to to think hard about the implications of their worldview, um, believing that that uh, that if they can feel the tension, they'll be they'll begin to think again about it. Okay. Anyway, this will become illustrated as you said. This is an illustrative uh, episode today. This will be illustrated quite well as we go forward. You and I have been giving some illustrations of this. To use the word illustration once again. We've talked about human worth and dignity. And then last week, we began talking about the problem of morality. Um, And morality is a problem. 
it's a problem for those who say that nature is all there is. Um, what I want to do today is continue that discussion about morality, and I want to begin by reading something that atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen said in a debate that he had with a Christian philosopher, J.P. Moreland, um, on the existence of God. In fact, it was published as a book called God Does, I mean, Does God Exist? Anyway, here's something Kai Nielsen says in that debate. It's wrong, God or no God, to torture little children just for the fun of it. What basis we have for making this confident moral claim is another thing. But we know, I mean, if we know anything, if we have any moral understanding at all, we know that that is wrong, okay? This statement just really caught my eye, Matt, and made me think, because I think that these words from Kai Nielsen, I think they illustrate beautifully th this tension that I'm talking about. That is the tension the thoughtful atheist finds himself in when it comes to the issue of morality or human dignity, other things we're going to talk about going forward. Because notice on the one hand, Nielsen insists that he knows that the torture of little children is wrong. He knows it. I mean, he, he says whether God exists or whether God doesn't exist, it just doesn't matter. If we know anything, we know this. We know that it is morally wrong. In fact, he's, he, he says he's okay with making this confident moral assertion. Okay, on the other hand, thinking about his words again, on the other hand, I think that Nielsen gives us a hint at the difficulty that he might have as an atheist in providing a philosophical basis for this confident moral claim that he makes. He hints at it when he says, what basis we have for making this confident moral claim is another thing. You know, what it's like he's, he's hedging his bets. He's saying, I know that this is wrong. Now, what basis I have philosophically for saying that, I mean, that's, that's another question. But whatever, you know, what he's basically saying is, look, I understand that I may have a hard time explaining exactly how I can make such a confident moral claim. Given that my worldview, given that, that in my worldview, the universe is just one massive material accident, there's no God and there's no objective moral law in the universe. He's saying, I understand I might, might have a hard time providing you with a philosophical basis, but, but whatever, I still know. I, I just know it's absolutely morally wrong to torture little children just for the fun of it. It is an interesting you know, thing to ponder. I mean, he might... Uh, if you press him, I don't want to put words in Kai Nelson's mouth because he's probably a million times smarter than I am, uh, right? He's not, uh, it's not an unintelligent person we're talking about. Um, but he might say something like, well, um, perhaps it has something to do with evolution and the preservation of the species, right? That mm -hmm. tells us that we should not kill our offspring because that is inhibitive to the, you know, progress of the species, you know, but at the same time, you know, you find atheists who either are for or against abortion based on stuff that's kind of separate from that argument. Um, so, yeah, there's to find a, a, a claim that you can even call moral if it's if it's nothing but scientific materialism is, uh, as we've mm -hmm. illustrated last week with the where the true moral relativists, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of a hard thing to do. But at the same time, Ken. I got a lot of atheists and agnostic friends, and they're some of the most moral people I know, right? In terms of, like, you know, they don't live the kind of morality that I live as a Catholic, but in terms of them having a clear sense of something like justice, like, they feel that deeply. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So yeah. what do you do? And I totally agree. Okay, and we're going to come to that. We're going to come to that in just a moment, okay? But you're entirely right. Kai Nielsen is going to have some basis. He's going to have some idea in his mind of how to provi- provide some kind of grounding for moral law. He's, he's going to have some answer, you know. But the point I want to make right here is just simply in his words, I think we, we can see that tension. I would say as the image and likeness of God, he knows, he knows that it's morally wrong. And he, he, he's okay with making this confident moral claim. On the other hand, he kind of knows that on philosophical grounds, he's going to have to do, do some work, you know. And, and I think this is expressed when he says, you know, what basis we may have for making this kind of moral claim is, is another thing. Kind of, I'll get to that, you know, sort of thing, okay? Now, but, but here's the point of tension. I just want to fire in on it. And we're going to get to the question you just raised very quickly. On what basis does Mr. Nielsen as an atheist, on what basis does he make this confident moral claim? In fact, I would press it and say, forget confident moral claim. On what basis does he make moral claims of any kind in a universe in which it's nothing but particles? I mean, after all, according to Richard Dawkins, we've quoted this, I think, at least once. According to Richard Dawkins, isn't our godless universe, isn't it one in which there is, quoting him now, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, if ours is a universe in which there is no evil, you know, by nature, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, then as an atheist, how can right and wrong really be anything more than words that we use to describe what we prefer and what we don't prefer? What is to our taste, what is not to our taste? Don't right and wrong become, doesn't morality become purely subjective if we really do live in a universe in which, objectively speaking, there's no purpose, there's no design, there's no evil, there's no good. And so, in, in, in that case, why doesn't Nielsen just say he doesn't approve of the torture of little children just for fun? Why, why doesn't he just say that and leave it at that? Well, and not to get too far into the weeds on this, uh, but this is part of the argument that C.S. Lewis makes at the beginning of The Abolition Mm -hmm. of Man, which is to say, you know, he's looking at a children's textbook in which, you know, somebody says that a water flow all is sublime, and the authors say, well, what that really means is that these people have sublime feelings about it, you know, and uh, Mm -hmm. ultimately Mm -hmm. kind of talking about this idea of of something has a value based on the value we assign it. Um, And that's kind of what you're left with right? Um, life has value yes. because we assign it value. Objectively speaking, these little children in a purely materialistic worldview don't have any more value than a rat or a pig or a dog, <laughs> right? As we talked yeah, about re- before. Referring back to, yeah. But referring back but to our all, episode two weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. But we, something in us tells us that's wrong, even if we haven't done the philosophical well, see, what, what, work yeah. to do, to, to, see, to say why. See, and what you're grappling with in the very words that you're speaking, what, what you're grappling with is that tension again. There, there's this tension. You know that human beings have value. You know that. And yet, if nothing exists but particles interacting according to the laws of chemistry and physics and all that, and everything else has simply evolved out from particles, then there is no objective worth to anything, to a dirt clod or a human being, um, you know, anything. And there's no objective moral law. I mean, unless you want to say, I mean, 
tell me if, you, if you've ever heard of a philosopher that said, well, I mean, an atheist that said, well, what I believe that is the nature of the universe, what I, here's my metaphysic. I believe that material exists, matter and energy, and then I also believe that a moral law is just sort of floating out there, like, like, like gamma ray or something, you know? There's, there's just material, and then there's a moral law. Where'd it come from? Oh, nowhere. Or, yeah, I've uh, never heard anybody make that argument, just so you know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and um, I, but and at I the same time, you, you know, <clears throat> again, how do you know if you're, if this is your argument, um, how do you know that you're not just being fooled by your own sentiments into thinking that this is wrong when actually it means nothing? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's well, a deep, it's a deep well to go down. Well, that's what we're going to do here today is we're going to talk about some of the possible options, you know. Um, once you take God out of the universe, again, from the brothers Karamazov, that famous line, if there is no God, everything is permissible. Well, that doesn't sit right, you know, and so how do we answer it? How do, how do we come up with alternative grounding or basis for morality? That's what we're going to talk about. Now, when I talk about this issue with someone who identifies as an atheist, um, it's common to hear the response that you kind of echoed a few minutes ago. Um, where the atheist will say to me, it sounds like you're saying that atheists don't believe in right and wrong, or it sounds like you're saying that atheists are bad people, that they're immoral people. And I, and so I want to emphasize, Matt, actually what I'm saying is nearly the reverse of this, of that. Because what I'm saying is that because that atheists have been created by God and are the image and likeness of God, they cannot escape knowing that right and wrong are real. They cannot escape believing in the existence of objective morality, because God has etched it into their very souls in creation. And so I'm not saying that atheists are bad people or they don't believe in morality. In fact, most care about right and wrong, and most try to live according to standards of right and wrong. Um, just like Kai Nielsen here saying, God or no God, we know. <laughs> you know, Whether it's a God or not, we know this, we know this. Everyone knows this, Kai said. And so my point is not that atheists don't believe in right and wrong or that atheists are bad people. Many of them are far better than I am. Although I, I've got to say, I'm not sure if I would say Kyle Nielsen is a million times smarter than you. That was kind of a pretty high number. I mean, imagine wow. if he really was a, a million times smarter than the very, very smart and uh, esoteric. Well, what's a million times one? You know, I mean, this is... Uh... <laughs> okay, so my point is not that atheists uh, don't believe in right and wrong or, or, or that atheists are bad people. My point is simply that on the basis of their worldview, their metaphysic, their view of the nature of reality, they cannot account for the existence of an objective moral law. And so it's like you were saying a moment ago, they have to create it for themselves. It has to be an expression that just comes from them. You can't get soup from a stone. I mean, I've heard that many times. I assume it's true. I've tried. I've never gotten soup. And you can't get moral law from particles, from material particles floating around in the universe. Again, conducted according to the laws of physics and chemistry. And, And then I'll take it a step further. You can't get moral law from living biological tissue. No matter how much you tweak it by random mutation and natural selection, you can't get moral law. You can get moral feelings, you can get moral ideas, but you can't get an objective moral law. Okay, so that's where I'm starting. Now, the responses of people, when this sinks in in conversation, when this begins to sink in, some who are who would identify as atheists begin to think again about their atheism, some. And I wish it were more. 
but some begin to think again about their atheism because it strikes them, it begins to strike them as a problem that they have such deep moral convictions and yet they believe in a universe that, that can't support those moral convictions. It begins to bother them. And then on the other end of the spectrum, this was our topic last week, um, many simply accept a total moral relativism. They, they just give in and say, okay, morals then really are completely subjective and relative from person to person and society to society, in which case all debate about morals comes to an end in that kind of response. You know, Stalin's morals are his. Mother Teresa's morals are hers. Um, who's to judge? Yeah, that in, in my conversations like this, that's about 1%, right? Almost nobody yeah. I talk to. Maybe you have a more uh, robust reaction in that direction, but most of the people that uh, I talk to when we get to that point in the conversation do not double down on like <laughs> Stalin and Gandhi yeah. are basically the same guy. Many, I, I would put the numbers like this. Many may say, I'm a relativist. I believe that, you know, well, you know, right and wrong, who can judge? They're, you know, different strokes for different folks. Many will say that, but if they really think it through to the bottom, like we said last week, no, I, I would agree with you. There, there's only 1% that say, yeah, literally, I'm a relativist. I mean, literally. Hitler's ethics are just as good as my ethics. I don't try to, you know, judge one or the other. Who's to judge? You know, if in India, and I understand that this still takes place in some of the more rural villages, if in India, um, the wife is burned alive on her husband's funeral pyre when he dies, um, and if they think that's okay, who am I to judge? You know, I agree with you. Very few were willing to go all the way to the bottom and double down, bite the bullet, and stand by that, okay? What, what most say is something like this. The response that I usually get and that occurs most often is this. They will say something along the lines of, hey, we don't need God in order to have morals. Quit trying to pretend that we need to have God somehow in order to have a standard or a basis for morality. We can use reason to decide what is good and what is wrong, what works and what doesn't work. And let me shine a little light ahead of time. What comes forth always ends up being some form of situation ethic, some form of what we refer to as utilitarianism or consequentialism. It, it always ends up being something where, that is a plan for morality, where the focus is not on the intrinsic morality of a particular act, the intrinsic rightness or wrongness of an act, but always on the consequences, the purported results. It's always utilitarian, it's always consequentialist, it's always some form of situation ethic. And what we're gonna to do today, this will be kind of fun, Matt, is what I wanna do is look at two of the most popular forms that this has taken in recent years. Two of the most popular options that atheist philosophers have proposed for grounding systems of morality without God in a godless universe. All right, Okay. right, let's do it. The two ways. The first is the, the, first is the ever famous <clears throat> happiness standard. Okay, and Peter Singer is the name that is very much associated with this, Peter Singer. Peter Singer believes, to put it in a nutshell, Peter Singer believes that we can base our decisions about what is right and what is wrong on a consideration of what will bring about, and I quote, the greatest total amount of happiness in each situation, okay? We can base our decisions about what is right and what is wrong by a consideration of what will bring about the greatest total amount 
of, you know, amount as though happiness is like sand, you know, put it on the scales, the greatest total amount of happiness in any given situation. And uh, let me illustrate, use a couple of illustrations. It, it's on this basis, uh, for instance, that he argues for the morality of abortion, that it is moral to abort your unborn child. And it's so interesting to me to follow his logic, Matt, because it's the exact opposite as how most pro-abortion advocates argue. Um, as you know, most pro-abortion advocates, they, they accept the premise that innocent human life should never be taken. They will agree with that. Innocent, oh no, innocent human life should not be taken, should not be killed. Um, but then they argue that the unborn child is not innocent human life. That's the way they structure their argument. The unborn child is just, you know, uh, you know, what is it called? Um, tissue of uh, whatever, you know? Yeah, um, appropriate tissue. Sometimes you'll hear, you know. Yeah, clump of cells a, a or. A, another of the woman's mm, body parts, of, right? It's not its, right. it's, not its own Product of creature, conception. Yeah. yeah, product of conception. Right. Okay. Now, here's the thing. Singer argues exactly the reverse. Singer accepts the premise that the unborn child is innocent human life. In, in fact, Peter Singer, an atheist, he, he says it's a total fiction to try to argue otherwise. <laughs> That's what he says. It's a total fiction to try and argue that this that this entity growing within the mother is not an innocent human child. But then what he rejects is the premise that innocent human life should never be taken. Now, rather, he argues that innocent human life, I mean, in, purely innocent human life can be taken if the result is a greater total amount of happiness. That's the way he argues for abortion. And, uh, he uses the exact same rationale to argue for infanticide, at least in some cases. I, I don't know what he says about all cases. In his book, uh, Practical Ethics, Singer explains how the happiness standard works in practice with regard to infanticide. And I'm quoting him now. When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects for a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of a happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of a happier life for the second, not yet born. Therefore, if killing the hemophiliac infant has no adverse effects on others, God, what a line. If killing the infant has no adverse effects on the mother, the father, brothers and sisters, uncles, aunts, anyone else in society, he says, according to the total view, it would be right to kill him. That, that's how... This is an example of how he goes about determining right and wrong. This and is the point at which I have to resist asking about 300 questions that that raises. <laughs> so you're saying that if you kill this one, you're guaranteed that you're going to get another healthy one. Yeah, right. In its place. No. Okay, so you're saying that happiness ultimately is based on health. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, maybe, maybe not. Yeah. So you're saying that yeah. you you can guarantee that if you kill this hemophiliac baby and you get one that doesn't have hemophilia, that person won't come into the world and suffer from lifelong depression. Yeah, saying, I mean, all of your questions, or, all of your or, questions. Or let's say, let's say uh, the question is um, maybe it'll be more financially prosperous to the family that if they don't have this baby, they kill this innocent human life. Or to this mother that she goes on to advance a career and um, makes, you know, six figures. Are we saying that a six-figure salary is the key to happiness? 
because I live in the D.C. area and I'm surrounded by miserable people with a lot of money, <laughs> right? So, yeah, I mean, it's a there's just a lot of questions or is he that saying, raises. Or, or is he saying, on the other hand, that the hemophiliac child isn't going to grow up to become, you know, president of the United States, <laughs> States or the greatest you, we musician that's ever existed? can't have any hemophiliac presidents here. No hemophiliac yeah, it, presidents. Okay, but setting aside all those questions, yeah, he's laying out a basic rationale that I guess he assumes each family can can take and they they can weigh it on the scales and decide for themselves. But, you know, he's just laying out this basic rationale that what you want to look at to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is moral, what is immoral, is you need to you need to work on the on you got to get your calculator out and you got to figure what will bring about the greatest total amount of happiness. And he says, if you conclude that the greatest total amount will be brought about by killing the hemophiliac child, then it would re, it would be right to do it. It would be right to do it. Okay, and because one thing you, I forgot to, from an outside perspective, yeah, yeah. know whether or not the person on the other end is happy. Yeah, only the well, person. We, okay, in only the middle the of all this confusion, they're happy. In the middle of all this confusion, uh, you know, and uh, no, it's good. And all the questions you're throwing in there, I forgot to mention something. Peter Singer is not just an atheist philosopher. He is professor of bioethics at Princeton University. There you have it. What a world. What a world. Okay. Now, let me push this, uh, you know, to the grid a little bit further. I want you to notice something. Notice that Singer's argument here, the argument he makes Notice that it's utterly indistinguishable. I mean, it's completely, utterly indistinguishable from the arguments used by Nazi doctors to justify the el- elimination of the disabled and others who had, in the words that they like to use, lives not worth living. Okay? It's indistinguishable. And that, that's what's interesting because Peter Singer is Jewish. And when he's attacked on this, he he will hide behind his Jewishness in order to war, ward off the you know the the incoming blows, you know hey you know I'm a Jew and I have family members who were in Auschwitz and thing, things like that. He'll he'll use that as his shield, and yet his rationale here is completely in, in, indistinguishable. I want to read to you something that will just chill you to the bones. This is from a letter that was published in First Things Magazine, May 2002 edition. It was written by someone uh, named Wesley Smith. This is what he says. The first officially sanctioned infanticide in Germany occurred in 1939 after the father of a disabled baby, he names him Baby Nauer, wrote to Chancellor Hitler seeking permission to have his son euthanized. Hitler, believing that the time was ripe to begin eradicating the defectives, sent his physician, Dr. Karl Brandt, to inform Baby Nauer's doctors that there would be no legal consequences for killing the infant. In the book, a book titled the, the Nazi Doctors, Robert J. Lifton quotes a 1973 interview in which the father of Baby Nauer recalled the reasons that Dr. Brandt and Hitler agreed to the killing of his son. Quoting now from the father, he, that is Dr. Brandt, explained to me that the Fuhrer had personally sent him and that my son's case interested him very much. The Fuhrer wanted to explore the problem of people who had no future whose lives were worthless. From then on, we wouldn't have to suffer from this terrible misfortune because the Fuhrer had granted us the mercy killing of our son. Later, we could have other children, handsome and healthy, of whom the Reich could be proud. In that, by the (laughs) way, in Peter Singer's defense, I do see a distinguishing trait between what he's saying and what's being said here. Because Peter Singer would say, 
um, the measure of why we kill and don't kill some people is because some people are capable or incapable of happiness. I would think that the Fuhrer's argument here would be some people are capable or incapable of military service. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a that's a major yeah. issue that I think well, no. we should at least well, grant Peter Singer a little fairness on. Well, no, I, I understand that you're joking a little bit, but you're missing something. Peter Singer is not simply saying kill him because he doesn't have a chance of being happy. He's saying kill him so that the rest of the family, everyone around will be happier. <laughs> and yeah, in true. that sense, I in, in that sense, I say it's utterly indistinguishable because what Dr. Brandt and what Hitler are saying is that our entire society will be happier. It will bring the, the great the total amount of happiness will be increased by getting rid of this worth this person whose life is not worth living. And you asked some questions. Well, the question that comes to my mind when I read this this letter from uh, from First Things is is this. And when I reflect on um, Peter Singer's philosophy, what act? I mean, try to think of an act that could not be justified if, rather than considering the intrinsic goodness or evil of an act, if the standard of evaluation was focused entirely on this ambiguous amount of total happiness that might accrue to others. Um, for instance, why not murder people of any age rather than just infants? Why not murder people of any age um, in order to, I mean, if you believe it's going to increase the total happiness? Um, I go even further. Why not torture the innocent in order to deter future crime? I mean, that would come up. For instance, imagine they just haul me in once every quarter, or I'll make it you. They just haul oh, no. you in once every let's, quarter. Let's, I'd rather it be you. Okay. They haul me in. I mean, imagine that in the state in which we live, they just haul me in once every quarter and they put the blowtorch to me for like three or four four seconds, turn off the blowtorch and say, and by the way, this is what you will get in spades if you ever commit any kind of crime. Now go home, be warmed and be filled, enjoy your, <laughs> enjoy your family. I mean, why couldn't you justify that on the grounds that, you know what? Imagine the total amount of happiness in a society where no one commits crimes. And, and all we have to do is take the fathers of every family and tor you know, hit, hit them with a blowtorch for one or, one or two seconds every quarter. And so maybe they blowtorch that's the question that arises in my mind. You in. That's right, yeah. No, I don't I, like that kind I of think, world. I think you could justify anything. And that is why, by the way, that is why in regimes like the regime of Mao Zedong in China, um, he was able to eliminate millions of people on the premise that it would bring in this beautiful uh, communist utopia in which there would be a greater total amount of happiness. Same with Stalin starving the kulaks to death. Same with Pol Pot. You know, uh, you know this is the rationale of um, these kinds of absolutist regimes. They well, you're leaving one out, um, who? Ken. You're leaving one out. That would be Thanos the supervillain in the Marvel Cinematic Universe whose whole goal throughout the the first, like, 15 movies, the whole arc builds up to the fact that Thanos has decided the way to make the universe happy is to get the Infinity, Sto Infinity Stones into his gauntlet, snap his fingers, and eliminate <laughs> half of all life in the entire universe so that the other half can live yeah. in prosperity, <laughs> right? It's not that... I mean, this is the biggest villain of your children's lifetime, Ken, and grandchildren's lifetime, and that's their deal. That's that's his M.O. Um, well, I'm glad they know about Thanos, since they don't know anything about Mao, Mao or anything about Stalin or Pol Pot. Well, I mean, or Thanos is a like pretty that. bad guy. 
it's a pretty bad guy. Uh, but, um, well, I admit, the way you describe him, he sounds very unpleasant. Yeah, he is, he's quite unpleasant. Quite unpleasant. But he sounds like a but, disciple of Peter Singer. Um, I don't know if Peter Singer's in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but that's a good <laughs> question. Uh, but you mentioned Wesley Smith, and I do want to just kind of point out that... Um, Sure. Wesley is kind of one of the big whistleblowers on the question of euthanasia um, for not just the elderly, but also the mm-hmm. medically vulnerable and, and, and a whole bunch of different, um, I mean, he's, he's blowing the whistle when people are trying to euthanize their kids because they're blind. You know, there's, Wesley mm-hmm. talks about this kind of thing a lot. And some of his, um, he looks at cases that, that often get missed by the news in case you're looking for, um, for someone who talks about this with some frequency. Thanks for bringing that in because I didn't know who he was. I just knew what oh, he really? said there in the letter. Yeah, and while you're yeah. at it, check out uh, the Life and Hope Network. Bobby Schindler, um, uh, Terry Schiavo's brother, okay. does a lot of work on this as well. Okay, thank you. Okay, now let's take this uh, this Thanos story and let's just drive it another couple of steps into insanity, okay? Atheist neuroscientist Sam Harris presents a variation on this happiness theme and he's probably the most popular person out there preaching morality on an atheist basis now, okay? And this takes a little bit of explanation, but you'll see it's just a variation on what Singer is saying, um, a more scientifically oriented variation. Okay, first of all, Sam Harris completely rejects the idea that is very common, the idea that science can only tell us what is, but it can never tell us what ought to be. Now, I believe that. Science can only tell us what is. It can describe what it sees, but it can't tell us what is right and what is wrong. Um, In in general, I agree with that, okay? But instead of that, Harris rejects that. This is the way Harris argues. Harris argues that since A, morality is concerned about increasing the happiness and well-being of conscious creatures, especially humans, and B, Harris argues, these questions do have factual answers. Okay, let's stop there for just a second, okay? This is the way he argues. Morality is about enhancing the happiness of conscious creatures, the, the flourishing and well-being of conscious creatures. B, these questions have factual answers. There are factual answers out there. Therefore, here's his conclusion. These are questions that science could over time answer for us, even as science answers all kinds of other factual questions. Let me give you an example. Does abortion on demand tend toward the enhancement of human happiness and well-being? Does it? That's a question. Or would infanticide, that is infanticide on demand, would this, at least in certain cases, would this tend toward the enhancement of human happiness and well-being? What about same-sex marriage? Would it? Would it not? What about polygamy? What about uh, you know complex marriages like 17 girls and four guys or, or 14 guys and two girls? What about anything and everything? What about marriages between human beings and dolphins? Okay, would acceptance of, of these, and there's so many others we could just dream up, but would acceptance of these tend toward an increase in human happiness and well-being? Now, Harris would say, science may not know the answers at this point to those questions, but these questions have factual answers. There are answers to them. And so his idea is that as science finds these answers over time, then we will know what is right and what is wrong, okay? Then we'll know whether abortion on demand is right or wrong, whether this or that is right or wrong. Okay, you understand his argument? 
I understand his argument, but it's not science that can answer that, like in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It's an infinity stone that Doctor Strange gets, and he sits in like a lotus position, and he goes through like this like mumbo jumbo thing, and he um, uh, auto plays through fourteen million six hundred and five possible scenarios to figure out in which one they will beat Thanos, and he decides that the in the only scenario in which they beat Thanos, he has to surrender the time stone. Folks, may, but again, may I appeal to our audience. May I appeal to our audience for a moment? Do you Please see do. what Matt does to me? Do you see what Matt does to me? Here I'm talking about Sam Harris, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm being thrown infinity stones? I'm just saying, does Sam Harris think we're going to somehow <laughs> invent the time stone so we can see what will actually bring about the longest-term uh, yeah. happiness for all of humanity? That's he's, what if, he's, he's, if he's got the time stone, I want to go look at it. That's what he's saying, Matt. That's what he's saying. He's got the infinities. Don't throw an infinity of stones at me, but but a time stone once in a while. That's right. really as long only as it's just timed, like a handful. As long as it's timed accurately and and appropriately. But yeah, you're right though. That's what he's saying. What he's saying is all of these moral questions that we have, they do have factual answers, and we would agree. I mean, God knows the factual answer. They do have factual answers, and he says, given time, science may be able to show us through studies, you know, what the uh, what the answer is. Now. Don't shoot me for saying this, Matt, okay? Hold on and hold hold your fire. I, I would but not I shoot you for saying this, Ken, unless I thought it would bring about the greatest happiness for the rest of mankind. <laughs> the greatest total amount, yeah. Okay, I think Harris is making some good points here. That's why I'm saying don't shoot me. Let me explain. Okay, after all, I believe that it's true that human happiness and flourishing is at the heart of morality, of of what makes things good and what makes things evil. It's a It's an important part of that. It's at the heart of it. And I think it's true that questions about what brings the greatest amount of t- t- human happiness are questions that have factual answers. And, and therefore, they are questions that at least in theory, in theory, could be answered through the use of reason over time. Uh, you know, I, I'll give an example. Studies show, for instance, that children who grow up without fathers have a harder time in nearly every area of life. Okay, and this is something that's concluded again and again and again. So I think that we can reasonably conclude that it's good for families to stay together. And, and we could conclude too that it's more that it's wrong for fathers to just abandon their families to, you know. So in a sense, I mean saying the Harris is kind of making a good point here. And I want to say that Christianity has always taught this. Christianity has always taught us that we can know by the use of reason at least something of what is right and what is wrong by pure reason alone. Christianity has always taught that the moral law of God um, is concerned with our ultimate happiness and that God has written this law on our hearts as, cre- as those made in his image and likeness and therefore that it's accessible to reason. We, we refer to that in Catholic reasoning. We refer to it as natural law. Yeah. Okay? And it's, so, it's referred to in the first paragraph of the Baltimore Catechism, right? Why did God even make us to know, love, and serve him in this life so as to be happy? Eternally happier. Yeah, to be happy forevermore. Right. Yeah, that's like the purpose. Okay. That's why he made us. So, so we agree that happiness is at the is at the heart of morality, and we agree that morality is something that can be known through the use of reason because God's written it on our hearts, and there's such a thing as the natural law. But here, here's the problem, though. It's still a moral law. It's it's a moral law within our worldview, within the Christian worldview. Morality is still about attitudes and actions that are conceived as being intrinsically good or evil, moral or immoral. 
On the other hand, when you listen to Sam Harris speak, and I've listened to his lectures, I've listened to him quite a bit, you begin to realize that he is not thinking in moral terms at all. As a consistent atheist, and I think he's very consistent on this, Harris believes that morality, that is an objective law of morality somehow existing in the universe, is an illusion, as Michael Roos does. Harris thinks that Harris thinks, therefore, in very practical terms. He thinks in very utilitarian terms, just like Peter Singer. Um, for instance, whereas most everyone would say, and, and this means atheists or believers in God, most everyone would say that torturing little children is intrinsically evil, okay? That it's, it's something that is morally wrong, and that someone who does it is morally guilty and should be held morally accountable for his actions. These are the kinds of words we use. Harris would prefer to say something like this, that one who, that someone who tortures little children just for fun is, and I'm quoting him now, is, is really lousy. He's just really lousy at enhancing human happiness and well-being and the flourishing of, of humankind. He's just really bad at it, okay? And therefore, he needs to be treated like we might treat a dangerous animal, like, like a crocodile, um, that had gotten loose and was, you know, threatening human happiness and flourishing. That's what he says. And if you think I'm trying to create a straw man here, I am not. In fact, Harris explicitly equates the way we should think, the way we should think of and treat an axe murderer in one place. He explicitly equates the way we should think of and the way we should treat an axe murderer with the way we should think of and treat a dangerous crocodile. He equates them. And he explains it even like this, Matt. I mean, when a crocodile comes out of the Nile and it grabs Matt Swain by the ankle and drags him down and tries to eat him up, assuming you survive first, you don't think of the attack in moral terms. You don't think of the crocodile as being evil and that the crocodile now needs to be held morally accountable for, for what it's done. You know, you understand that the crocodile is just a material creature and that the crocodile is just doing what it has to do given its nature, given, you know, the, 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 the chemistry firing through its brain if it has one. You don't think in moral terms about it. You just know that you want the crocodile away from you and you want the crocodile put away for the sake of the enhancement of human happiness, for, for the total amount of happiness. You, you know that. Well, Sam Harris equates that directly, and he just says flat out, the same thing with someone who attacks you uh, with an axe. The same thing. Provided you can ward off the axe murderer and provi provided you can survive, we should not think of what the axe murderer has done in moral terms. We should not call him evil. We should not throw around words like that, say that he's morally accountable or that he's guilty or anything like that. He says there's just no reason to do that. Rather, we should understand that he has done only what he has to do given his background and life, his brain chemistry and so forth. And because of that, there's no reason to start throwing around these terms like evil and good. Instead, we should cage him, but uh, but forget the moral terms. What so do you think of that? this is why, by the way, um, when it comes to an argument or two that I've had, and I'm sorry that I'm invo invoking so many Disney franchises in today's conversation, uh, but in conversations that right. I've had about which is the most evil of the Disney villains. I always say, <laughs> I don't know, but I know who the least evil of the Disney villains is. It's Shere Khan from the Jungle Book. He's just a tiger doing what tigers do, man. 
That's even right. Even if he's an anthropomorph- anthropomorphized tiger. But still, no, uh, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast is qualitatively uh-huh. more evil than Shere Khan because Shere Khan was built for that. Yeah, and go- going outside Disney, I I think the evil guy on that movie, Unbreakable, was pretty evil. Yeah, the, you could the say guy that. that went out and, and burned down buildings and caused train wrecks in order to try and find someone who was I know, a superhero Ken, that was just in Earth, poor you know? taste. That was just in poor taste. He was just bad at advancing human happiness. Yeah, right? he was lousy at enhancing human happiness, but he was only doing what he had to do given his brain chemistry, given the the associated facts of his life and whatnot. Um, and this is not to mock yeah, people who think this, but like it just shows, I think, that the that, that argument, you can't follow it very far. I mean, you can... You can toss it around in a classroom, but you can't toss it around in a courtroom. If you know well, what I'm Harris saying. is being Harris is being just he's being very very consistent with his conception of the nature of our world of a world without God, because he's willing to go so far as to say Ted Bundy, you know the the famous Ted Bundy who raped and murdered something like thirty or thirty five young women, he's willing to say the same thing about T- Ted Ted Bundy that look he's just like a crocodile or he's just like a rattlesnake that you step on. He was doing what he had to do, given his uh, mind frame and who he was. And therefore, using terms like evil are unhelpful. Using terms like morally, you know, responsible or guilty or that he should be held morally accountable is not helpful. What is helpful is to simply realize that he is he, he, he was not good at enhancing human flourishing and happiness. And therefore, he should be separated the way you would separate a, uh, you know, a rattlesnake. Okay. Yeah. And just to to put a, I mean, a Mm -hmm. finer point on it, the church would say something similar, but from a completely different perspective. So the church would say that anyone who sins in any way is seeking what they perceive as their own happiness, right? Even the man Mm -hmm. who commits suicide is doing what he thinks for himself is a good. The difference is the church says, that's a sin. (laughs) This is objectively immoral because it violates the law of God. Um, as the f- famous quotes goes, yeah. e- even the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God, right? Uh, anybody who robs a bank is committing an evil act, but they're doing it because they think it's going to cause them greater happiness. The difference is the church says that's not just a lousy way to advance human happiness. It's an actual immoral act and a sin. So that's just to because you see bring that new perspective. Yeah, because, you know, to bring that down to the bottom line, that's because in our in a Christian worldview, the ultimate reality is an infinite personal moral being, God. God creates this world. God creates you and I as his image and likeness. Moral law fits, in fact, is to be expected in the, within this worldview. And so you can talk about morality. The thing I appreciate about Harris and his consistency is how much clarity it brings. Because, you know, after all, in a universe without God, and therefore a universe in which there is no moral law that is existing actually metaphysically in the universe, a universe that, as Richard Dawkins again writes, uh, in which there is no design, no purpose, let those words sink in, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, how else could right and wrong be conceived except in purely practical terms? And so I appreciate the fact that Harris does that. I mean, he bites the bullet and just says, I have jettisoned morality, and I'm going to talk to you in purely utilitarian, practical terms. When Ted Bundy rapes and murders, he's just not helping out with the project of, of human happiness. It's very practical. You know, so 
morality in his worldview, and I would say in an atheist worldview, sort of ends up being like, that's moral laws end up being sort of like traffic laws or rules for healthy diet. You know, and when, when you think of it, we don't enact traffic laws because we think that there's something intrinsically immoral, you know, something evil about driving on the left side of the road. And so we want people to drive on the right. And, and by the way, I, I hope, I really hope that, that, that that's the case. Our British listeners are going to have a field day with this. <laughs> yeah. If it was like immoral to drive on the left side of the road. No, we enact traffic laws for the very, very practical, entirely practical purpose of enhancing human happiness. We don't want our streets to become, you know, rivers of blood. So we say drive on the right, don't drive on the left, stop at a red light and then turn, at least in California. You know, these other traffic laws, you know, put on a seatbelt and whatnot. So traffic laws are enacted in purely utilitarian grounds. And when Harris conceives of axe murderers as being akin to crocodiles, and when Harris conceives of the laws of morality as being akin to traffic laws, just practical matters, I think he's being entirely consistent within his naturalist worldview. And so I really appreciate it. Um, I really appreciate his work. And let me try to tie this together then. Okay, as you and I saw when we were looking at the, the problem of human worth and dignity, and once again, I mean, once again, we see the logic of atheism, the logic of atheism drives us to conclusions that seem completely at odds with what we in, intuitively know to be true and live in accordance with, I mean, to what every child really intuitively knows to be true. You've got this on the one hand, on the other. On the one hand, if there is no God and moral law does not really exist objectively in the universe, in this universe, um, then right and wrong must boil down ultimately to something like traffic laws or rules of healthy diet. You know, it just isn't healthy to go around murdering people. It just isn't healthy for the society. It's just not conducive to happiness to, you know, rob jewelry stores and beat up old men and old women. And it's just not conducive. And yet, here's the point of tension. Our atheist friend, who is the image and likeness of God, knows I mean, he just, he just flat out knows in his heart of hearts from the time he's very little that morality is real and that, I mean, it, as you said a moment ago, you know, I don't even know what you said a moment ago. I've totally forgotten, but you said something a moment ago that I wanted to reflect back on, but we know it's real. I mean, every child knows that right and wrong. Oh yeah, you were quoting the catechism and, and how that the church teaches these same things, but it sees this as moral, as a moral law. And it sees you know, violations as violations of a moral law. Whereas on an atheist premise, it all, it all just boils down to utilitarian. It boils down to, you know, um, tips for healthy diet, you know, or traffic laws. Because let me push it like really hard and to say this, who besides Sam Harris and some of his disciples, who has ever looked at what took place in those death camps in Poland during World War II, who has ever looked at what took place in those death camps and thought to himself, yeah, yeah, the men and women that ran those camps, the men and women that were, that took joy, that took pleasure in torturing and murdering the innocent, these people, they just weren't really, they weren't very good at the enhancement of human happiness. They were kind of lousy at it. I mean, there's no reason to call them evil. 
There's no reason, uh, certainly no reason to hold them morally accountable. If we hold them accountable, it will simply be because what they have done on a practical level is not helpful. It's not helpful for the enhancement of human flourishing. They are like rattlesnakes that you might step on and they would bite you. And so we need to cage them. Who has ever truly looked at what happened in those death camps and thought along those lines? I mean, Sam Harris professes that that's how he thinks now. I'm sure he has disciples. And yet, this is what follows from a naturalist worldview. I would say this is what a consistent atheist must believe about morality. And to tie it back to, you know, why we're talking about this and this question of on the journey and your experience and my experience of wrestling with with various questions that led us to the Catholic faith. A lot of my friends who would call themselves um, atheists on their most frustrated day, but mostly agnostics the rest of the time. Um, they're people like me who um, Sola Scriptura fell apart for them, and they also had a really just exhausting and frustrating experience with hypocrisy in, in my instance, evangelical mm-hmm. Christianity. And so they just dropped the whole God project. But when I've talked to them about these things and asked them about you know questions that would indicate either the Peter Singer camp of you know happiness... Uh, is the only reason, or um, utilitarianism is the only reason, they're still Mm -hmm. not, a lot of my friends who would call themselves agnostic are still not satisfied with those answers either, Um, because there's still that thread that connects them back. I don't know if it's the vacation Bible school or whatever, but I think that they Mm -hmm. still know, Mm -hmm. and they've had, they've tasted and seen something along the way, and I think that's important for us to remember, um, and this goes for fallen away Catholics who are baptized and have received first communion and confirmation and mm-hmm. then are maybe in this atheist camp. Um, I think it's a mistake to forget that grace has been operative with them at some point. And so mm-hmm. they might not say that that's why. They may say it's Peter Singer's argument <laughs> or Sam Harris's argument that is explaining to them why killing Nazis or killing Nazis killing children in Auschwitz is wrong. But on some level, it's also grace that's yes, it is. operative on them that's that's saying this to them in the depths of their soul. So and I think I it's important for us to remember. You're hitting that from a different angle, but when I say that they're created in the image and likeness of God, that's a grace I'm referring to, the grace of creation. Yeah. That they're, they're made to be something. That is, all of us, we're made to be human beings. And a part of being a human being and mirroring God, uh, being, being the image of God, is that this law of morality is written into our hearts. Um, this is why every child knows from the very beginning, you know, that's not fair. Or, or C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, I gave you a bit of my orange, why won't you give me a bit of my orange, uh, uh, of your orange? That's something that a child would say. And you referred a few minutes ago to Pascal saying all men seek happiness. Pascal went on to say that there once was in man a true happiness of which there now remains in him the mark and empty trace which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings. But the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite object, that is, by God himself. So Pascal's saying the same thing. Having been made in the image and likeness of God, and yet living in a fallen world, there's this grace that we've been created in God's image. And what you're pointing to, very important, is that there's probably a grace in their lives too. The vacation Bible school, the mother who dragged them down to the Baptist church or the Methodist church, um, the grace comes from a lot of different angles, and that's why I view um, an atheist as casting about 
you know, Peter, Peter Singer is casting about trying to figure out how do I ground morality? Because I, I, I know that morality must be real. I, I have to have it. I have to have it. But how do I ground it given the fact that I don't believe in God and I believe the universe is just this massive accident that came from nowhere? Sam Harris is trying to refine that. He's saying, yeah, you know, I know right and wrong are real too, but how can I understand it in terms of a purely material universe? Um, and so I view them as casting about, I guess is a good way of saying it. And that's why I say this is a point of tension in their lives that can be utilized for evangelistic purposes. That is just a, a discussion about morality and where does morality come from? How do you grand, ground morality? Can be something, it can be something, again, by God's grace, that begins to get someone, that, that, that it makes someone begin to think, does my worldview really match what I know to be true as a human being? How do I account for these these most basic aspects of my experience, that is, that I value human life, that I believe in right and wrong. How do I account for that when I turn around and say at the same time that it's nothing but chemicals, just nothing but chemicals? Well, as the late Norm MacDonald said to the late Larry King, Larry sounds like you got a God-shaped hole, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you showed me that video. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so, okay. so where do we go next? Okay, well, you mentioned this at the beginning, and we're going to come back to it. What about the idea that morality is an evolutionary adaptation, just like hands or feet or teeth or anything? That morality is an aid to survival and reproduction and nothing more. I want to say something about that. And so we're going to talk about that at the beginning next week as we move on to discuss human rights, which is another point of tension within the atheist worldview. How to account for our belief in human rights, especially in inalienable inherent human rights. So that's where we're going. Yeah. And again, that's, that's even a kind of a distinct question from human dignity, uh, you know, which we've discussed in a, in a previous segment. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. These are fun, uh, Ken. Uh, I think it really helps us drill down on some questions that a lot of people are asking. And, uh, some people are asking more seriously than others. And hopefully this is helpful to you. If you're asking these questions, hopefully. um, in your own per- particular search, if you're, if you got a Larry King sized God's size shape hole in your heart we'd love to hear from you come visit us at uh, community.chnetwork.org uh, or if you just want to look at some of the resources we have through the coming home network visit chnetwork.org there's a lot of stuff there uh, i'm matt swain ken hensley thank you so much talk to you next week thank you